If you would take your Bible, please, and open to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32, if you happen to have your Looking to Jesus worship guide, you can uh, pull that out as well, but when you do, you'll uh, find that there's not actually a place uh, in the worship guide for this particular message. We've added this one to the series, so just want to encourage you to, to pull out another piece of paper or to pull out your connection card and uh, take some notes on that as we make our way through Genesis chapter 32. I need to confess at the very outset today that um, in my preparation this week, this passage has brought me back many times to my childhood. Uh, Genesis 32 is the section of the Bible where Jacob, whom we met last week in our series, uh, wrestles with God. And as I read through this, I repeatedly went back to those Friday nights as a 10 or 11-year-old boy sitting in my living room in front of the TV with a bowl of popcorn watching WrestleMania. And it was so great. And now surely I'm not the only one in this room who remembers Hulk Hogan, right? (laughs) And Hulk Hogan getting ready to jump from the top rope and declaring to everybody who would listen, what are you going to do when the Hulkster runs wild on you? And... And then with his mullet flying through the air, he would, he would rip open that paper-thin yellow t-shirt and he would jump off the top rope and land on the bad guy in the middle whom he had just beaten into submission and the whole farce would be over before you even knew it. The memories, right? Like for reasons that I cannot explain, um, I was drawn into that bad kind of entertainment. And uh, for equally poor reasons that I cannot explain, that's the image that came to my mind as I was working through this passage in Genesis 32. And as I'm sure you're already able to understand, that is not the kind of wrestling match that is happening in Genesis 32. This is a real, physical wrestling match between God and Jacob. And God is using this incident in Jacob's life to teach him something that he would not otherwise learn. God's teaching him that before he can give blessing to Jacob, something needs to fundamentally change within Jacob. Here in Genesis 32, Jacob is walking through the valley of humility. He's walking through the valley of humility. And so follow along with me as we read Genesis 32, starting at verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Martin Luther, the great reformer of 500 years ago, once said about this specific passage in Genesis 32 that this is one of the most obscure passages in all of the Old Testament. 
And I cannot tell you how absolutely encouraged I was to hear Martin Luther say that. Because there were so many times through the course of this week where I sat at my desk reading Genesis 32 and thinking to myself, what does this mean? Like, what is God trying to say? What is he trying to say to the audience who first heard this? And by extension now, what is he trying to say to you and me through this passage? I mean, just take a minute and think about what's happening here in this section. Jacob takes everything that he has and he sends it on ahead of him. Then in the middle of the night, he wrestles against a man whom at first he has no idea who it is. And then this unknown assailant dislocates his hip. And then Jacob is, has his name changed. And as the sun comes up, this man, whom Jacob has now identified as God coming to him, this man leaves. Jacob then limps away to catch up with everyone else, all to be capped off with an Old Testament dietary regulation that was put in place as a result of this really strange wrestling match. Like, how do you make sense of all of that? Right? Like, how do you connect the dots in a passage that seem as disconnected as a WWF cage match? And so, the thing is, as you spend some time in this passage, you begin to see that Jacob is not just wrestling the provision out of God, but God is wrestling the pride out of Jacob. And when you see it like that, you begin to see that there is really actually something here in this passage for all of us because there is not a single one of us across this room who does not need to wrestle the pride out of our hearts as well. I mean, think about this. We all find ourselves in situations every single day, multiple times a day, where we think we're smart enough to figure out our latest problem, we're strong enough to fight our latest battle. We're resilient enough to bounce back from our latest difficulty. Or perhaps, worst of all, we think that we're good enough that we don't need God for any of the above. And on the one hand, if we are honest with each other, we all struggle with that kind of pride. But that's exactly the problem because on the other hand, it's that kind of pride that prevents us from being honest, not only with ourselves and not only with one another, but it's that kind of pride that ultimately prevents us from being honest with God. So this is where Jacob is, and on some level, this is where all of us are right now as well. And so to help us understand more of what's happening here in Genesis 32, let's rewind a little bit and see what has brought us, and more specifically, what has brought Jacob to this particular point. Last week, we saw in chapter 28 that Jacob met God in a dream and about a ladder that comes down from heaven to earth. And in that dream, God makes this astounding promise to Jacob that Jacob will return to the land that God has given to him and his family, the land which, at that particular point, Jacob is being driven from. So God says to Jacob, Genesis 28, verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Now think about that. Think about what God is saying to Jacob in that moment because Jacob right now is at a point in his life where he doesn't know what's about to happen. All he knows is that he's leaving everything familiar. He's leaving behind everything that he has come to know and to love and to appreciate and he does not know what's around the next corner for the next few weeks, the next few months, the next few years, maybe even the next couple of decades. He doesn't know. All he knows is that now God is saying to him, behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. Then God says, and I will bring you back to this land. So there's that promise. He's going to bring him back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So from there, Jacob sets out on a journey that would last more than 20 years. So Jacob is on his way to live with his uncle Laban, who lives more than 500 miles away in a place called Haran. And when he gets there, Jacob falls in love with his cousin, Rachel. 
falls in love with his uncle Laban's daughter, his cousin Rachel. Like, it's the Old Testament, okay? We're just going to keep moving. So Jacob stays to work with his uncle Laban, and they work out a deal of sorts. Jacob says to him, let me work for you for seven years, and in return, you give me your daughter Rachel as my wife. Laban thinks that's a great idea, and so for the next seven years, Jacob carries out his end of the deal, and the Bible says that the seven years seemed like only a few days to Jacob because he loves Rachel so much. And there you have it, your very first Hallmark Valentine's Day card right there in the Old Testament. (laughs) But when the time came for Jacob to marry Rachel, good old Uncle Laban pulls a fast one on Jacob and gives him his older daughter Leah instead of his younger daughter Rachel, whom Jacob has just spent the the past seven years working for. And as soon as Jacob, whose name means deceiver, as soon as Jacob discovers this, he dashes off to Laban and he says, why have you deceived me like this? Like, why have you pulled this fast one on me like this? And all of a sudden, the deceiver has become deceived. The handler has been handled. And so Jacob and Laban then work out a new deal. And this time Laban says to him, I'll give you Rachel and then you work for another seven years for me. And because Jacob loves Rachel so much, he agrees to this new deal. From there, Jacob has a bunch of kids with Rachel, Leah, and their two servants. And when Rachel gives birth to their final child, Jacob is ready to move on and he asks Laban to let them go. The problem is Laban wants Jacob to stay because Jacob has made Laban rich. But Jacob doesn't want to stay because he's tired of living in his father-in-law's basement. And so he wants to get out of there. And so as one final payment of wages, Laban agrees to let Jacob take all of the spotted sheep and the goats and all the black lambs from their flock and be on his way. The problem is that before Jacob is able to do any of that, Laban has his own sons go and take all of the spotted sheep and the goats and the lambs. And he sends them to a top secret location so that, in essence, Jacob will leave with nothing and Laban will still have everything. And again, it looks like the deceiver has been deceived. Except Jacob has a plan of his own. Whenever the sheep and the goats were breeding, Jacob would ever so subtly manipulate the circumstances and he ended up taking all of the stronger of Laban's sheep and goats and lambs for himself. So now Jacob is back on top. The handler who was being handled is now handling again. So when word spreads that this is what Jacob has done, God tells him to move out of there. So he and Rachel and Leah wrap up all of their belongings, including all of the animals, and they take off without even telling Laban that they're leaving. A few days later, Laban catches up to them and asks them why they left without so much as a word. And Jacob admits that he was afraid that Laban would go back on his word on the deal again. In the meantime, God appears to Laban and tells him not to harm Jacob. And Laban and Jacob make a covenant with one another that they will not do harm to each other ever again. Now, that's the last that we see of Uncle Laban. However, Jacob has another hurdle waiting ahead of him because he is about to see his brother Esau for the first time in more than 20 years. Now, last week, we looked at how Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. Esau was born first, and as the older brother, he was entitled to the birthright. The birthright was a big deal because it entitled the eldest son in the family to a double portion of his father's inheritance when the father died. 
But Jacob, being the deceiver that he's always been, found a way to swindle the birthright from Esau and later tricked his father Isaac into giving him the blessing that Isaac was prepared to give to Esau. That was the series of events that pushes Jacob out of this land where he is to go and live with his uncle Laban. Esau is so mad at him that he needs to escape Esau's anger. So now Jacob is making his way back home and as he's making his way home, he discovers that Esau is on his way to meet him halfway, but Esau Esau has 400 of his finest men with him, and Jacob instantly begins to panic. Because to him, it looks like Esau has been nursing this grudge for the past 20 years, and he can't wait to get his revenge on Jacob. So before seeing him, Jacob tries to butter up Esau by sending him animals from his flock, which he took from his uncle Laban, with the hopes that that will be enough to soften Esau. All of that to say this. Jacob is a very proud man. He has always taken care of himself. He has always fought for himself. He has always provided for himself. He is successful by the world's standards. He is completely self-sufficient. Which brings us now to this passage in Genesis 32 where God is about to walk Jacob straight through the valley of humility. Take a look again at this passage, starting at verse 22. The same night, So the same night that Jacob is putting together this plan about how he's going to meet Esau and he's sending all the animals ahead of him. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had and Jacob was left alone. Now it's really important at this particular point to remember that everything that happens right here is right before Jacob is about to go back into this land that God has promised to take him back to. The problem is that it appears as though Jacob has forgotten God's promises along the way. He's forgotten the reassurances that God has made to him along the way and he's taking matters into his own hands. He's trying to manipulate the circumstances yet again to try and get to a place where he thinks he needs to be. And so before entering into God's blessing, Jacob now has to walk through this valley of humility. And in some ways, without Jacob even realizing it, God has already been wrestling the pride out of him. Take a look back at verse 9. Jacob has just learned that Esau is coming to meet him with these 400 men, and that strikes instant fear into Jacob. But what you'll notice here in verse 9 is that it instantly causes Jacob to pray in a way that he has never prayed before. Look at verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I have crossed the Jordan and now I have become two camps. So notice this, Jacob's praying and he's saying, God, I I came here with nothing, but you have given me everything. Verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So just consider here that what God does for Jacob is the same thing that God does for us. God uses the circumstances of our lives to wrestle the pride out of us and bring us to these places of humility. I mean, to this point in his life, Jacob had done everything for himself. He's deceived, he's manipulated, he has schemed, he's connived, he's tricked, he's done all of these things. But now, he's coming home. 
He's coming back to the place that he loved and, and the place that he appreciated and the place that he had to leave. He's coming back there and he is so afraid of the uncertainty of what awaits him that he doesn't even know what to do. He doesn't even know how to handle this. And I'm sure if we were to go around the room right now, that we would all have a story to tell of a circumstance that we have went through or maybe a circumstance that you're going through right now where it has caused so much fear and so much uncertainty within your heart that you have absolutely no idea what to do. And friends, when fear and uncertainty are pressing into your life, your only hope is to turn to God. Your only hope is to turn to God. I mean, I mean think about this for a minute. God does not give you the things that you have so that you can lean into those and you can press into those during the difficult times of your life. God does not fill your bank account with money so that you can lean on that when life gets hard. God doesn't give you a nice house to live in so you can lean on your comfort when life gets hard. God gives us him for that. God gives us himself so that we will lean into him, press into him when the circumstances of our life become overwhelming and overbearing. We lean into him. Notice verse 24 again says that Jacob was left alone. Why does it say that? You think about this. Why is that so important for us to know that Jacob is left alone at this particular point? It's important, I believe, because God is setting Jacob up. God is setting Jacob up to realize that all that Jacob has, and in the end, ultimately, all that Jacob will need is God. And loved ones, no matter how afraid or how uncertain you feel about your future, no matter what circumstance you may be going through that is causing that anxiety and that worry within your hearts that you're trying to figure out, how do I make this work? How am I ever going to get from where I am to where I think I need to be? Whenever you go through those situations, you need to realize that God is setting you up. God is setting me up. God sets us up to realize that all that we have, and more specifically, ultimately, all that we need is God. Remember the Israelites? Many years later, as they're standing at the edge of the Jordan River and, and then at the edge of the Red Sea, I mean, talk about fear and uncertainty, right? So they're standing there at the foot of this water, and, and Moses is trying to lead the people away from the bondage of Pharaoh, only to be apparently backed into this corner, because they've got Pharaoh's army pursuing them on one end, and they've got this insurmountable body of water on the other end that they can't get across. And where do you go? Like, what do you do, right? And it's getting so bad for the Israelites at this point that they start saying things that make absolutely no sense. So they start looking to Moses, and, and they say to him, have you brought us here to die because there were no graves in Egypt for us to die? Like, seriously, that's what you're asking right now? They look at Moses and say, it would have been better for us to stay in slavery in Egypt than to come here and die. I mean, it's so bad for them right now because they don't know what to do. The fear and uncertainty is so overwhelming. And so Moses then comes alongside of them, Exodus 14, and he tells them this, the words of the Lord. He says, fear not. Stand firm. Just think about that for a minute. What's that circumstance in your life right now that you're going through that's causing so much fear, so much worry, so much anxiety within your heart right now? Like so much fear that you don't know what to do. You don't know where this is going to go. And to hear these words of God applied to that circumstance within your life by the power of the Holy Spirit because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, to hear God say to you, fear not. 
stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Just think about that. Like Here it is again, just like he set up Jacob. God sets up Moses and the Israelites to teach them that ultimately, in the end, God is everything that they need. He's all that they need. Why? Because it doesn't matter how great a swimmer they are. It doesn't matter how quickly they can build a boat to get across the sea. It doesn't matter how creative they are, how strong they are, or whatever else that they have. It doesn't matter how many possessions they brought along with them. What matters at the end of the day is that God has a plan to deliver them. God will take care of them. God will fight for them. So, fear not. Listen, loved ones, no matter what you're going through in your life right now, no matter what the circumstance, no matter how much fear, no matter how much anxiety it's causing you within your hearts, listen to the word of God. Listen to the promise of God and let this wash over your soul. He says to you, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. It's just like he did for Jacob. And the story obviously takes an interesting turn in verse 24. Verse 24 says, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, you got to picture this, because by this point, uh, Jacob is 97 years old. Like, nine, seven years old. And it's not like Jacob is in the prime of his life anymore, where he's 20 or 30, he can take care of himself. Like, the dude is old. And, and so think about this. Like, What's Jacob thinking right now? Try and put yourself in the story. Put yourself in his sandals and try and imagine what he must be feeling right now because it's the middle of the night and this man comes out of nowhere and starts wrestling him. Like, I don't think you can come to this passage and just immediately spiritualize the meaning of it. Like This is an actual physical wrestling match between a 97-year-old man and God. Like, who's going to win that one, right? But Jacob doesn't know that it's God yet. So who is this? Like, is it Esau? Like, while Jacob was getting his family and everybody else across the river, did, did uh, Esau pull, like, an end around and, and sneaks up on him from behind when he wasn't looking? Like, is that what's going on here? Was it a robber, which wouldn't have been far-fetched in the open space in the middle of the night? And at first, Jacob has no idea who this is. All he knows is that he is engaged in this unbelievable wrestling match that ends up lasting all night. Look at verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, think about what's happening here. For the better part of Jacob's life, he has depended upon himself. He's been self-sufficient in just about every possible way. And we have the benefit now of looking back on this and knowing that God is using this to wrestle the pride out of Jacob. But don't forget, this battle between God and Jacob has been going on all night. So verse 24, they were wrestling until the break of the day. And for all of the ways that God had tried to wrestle the pride out of Jacob, Jacob refused to give up. So just 
picture this wrestling match playing itself out over the span of an entire night. Time and time again, Jacob is defending himself. Time and time again, Jacob is relying on himself. Time and time again, Jacob is pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing away the advances of God within his life until finally God changes the game permanently. Loved ones, if we are not careful, we will get to this point too. Maybe not a dislocated hip, but it could be something completely different. I mean, think about this. Time and time again, God coming to you and to me through his word and telling us, trust in me. Time and time again, God coming to us in his word and telling us, follow me. Time and time again, God coming to us in his word and telling us, trust me with the timing of what you're going through. Trust me with the timing of that relationship. Trust me with the timing of whatever it is that you need. Trust me to provide exactly what you need. Think of it time and time again, the Holy Spirit of God working in us through the word and through prayer and through his people speaking into our lives and repeatedly telling us time and time again, do not quench my work in your life. Like Stop holding so tightly to the things of the world and cling to me. Time and time again, God coming to us and telling us this. And, and if we find ourselves time and time again refusing God's advances within our lives because we simply want to take care of ourselves, because for whatever reason we think our plan is better, we think we are stronger, we think we've got it all figured out, then we end up missing the blessing of God that is on the other side. Finally got to the place where God weakened Jacob at one of his strongest points so that all Jacob had left to do was to cling to God. Verse 26, Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So picture this, if you can. There's Jacob lying on the ground. I would imagine in a massive amount of pain, unable to move, and he's like a little kid grabbing onto their parents' ankles, right? Like, you know that? Like, like, you're standing there, you're trying to talk to somebody else, and there's little Johnny, little Susie down on the ground, and, and they're just like wrapped around your ankles. They will not let you go. And so you try and walk away, and there's a little Johnny, a little Susie, and they're just scraping along the ground right behind you, right? That's kind of what Jacob's doing here. He's like clinging onto God, and he will not let go. He won't let go until God blesses him. Why? Because God has humbled him so dramatically to the point now where he understands that all he has and ultimately all that he needs is God. Listen, friends. God disciplines those that he loves. Hebrews 12. But God's discipline never comes to us without God's grace. Let me say that again because that's really important for us to know. God disciplines those that he loves. But God's discipline never comes to us without God's grace. And you say, well, how do you know? Like, how can I be so sure that, that if God's going to wrestle the pride out of me, that it's not going to completely destroy me? Like, how can I be confident that, that I can surrender to God and let him do this and know that it's not going to completely obliterate me? Here's how you know. Job chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Like for all of the wonky theology of Job's friends that they gave to him, they got some things right, and this is one of them. Job 5, verse 17. Blessed is the one whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. 
Now let that sink in. God says that you are blessed when he disciplines you. Why? Because like Hebrews 12 says, it is for our good and it makes us holy. So the discipline, the correction that God brings into our lives ultimately is meant to make us more like Jesus. So think about these things in your life where God has disciplined you, where he's brought correction into your life. The reason that God does that is because he loves you. It's because through that, whatever that experience is for you, he is making you more like Jesus in that. So do not despise God's discipline, but at the same time, how do we know that his discipline will not destroy us? We'll take a look at Job 5, verse 18, the very next verse. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. The hands that wound us are the hands that heal us. God disciplines those that he loves, but his discipline never comes to us without his grace. Which is exactly what we see next in Genesis 32. Look at verse 27. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, we read that and we think to ourselves, well, wait a second, how can anyone strive with God and win? Like, isn't God all-powerful and stronger than we will ever be? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. But I think the key to understanding this verse is in that one single word, with. Jacob has not simply striven against God, verse 28, he has striven with God, and Jacob has prevailed. So when you strive against someone... The purpose of your striving is that you're fighting for different things. You're striving against someone because you want a different outcome than they do. But striving with someone doesn't necessarily always mean that you're striving against them. So when you're striving with someone, it's often because you both want the same thing. You're just trying to get there in different ways. So let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, Stacy and I traveled to Phoenix for our annual uh, Senior Pastors and Pastors' Wives Conference that we go to in Phoenix. And, and so we spent a few days in Phoenix, and, and then we flew home. And we had a connecting flight in Dallas, and our flight from Dallas to Toronto, when we got to the airport in Dallas, we found out was delayed a half hour. So we thought, okay, no big deal. We'll just obviously wait for it, and then we'll get on the plane when it's all ready to go. But then the half hour turned into an hour, and an hour turned into two hours, and two hours turned into four and a half hours. And during those four and a half hours, we were switched to three different terminals and three different airplanes. And at one point, we even learned that in one of the planes, there was a leak in the oxygen tank in the cockpit. And when we found that out, we're like, you know what? We're willing to wait a few extra minutes if it means that our pilots are conscious for the flight home. Like, we're totally good with that. And so we waited, and, um, and now you can imagine how cranky some people get, right? Like how cranky some travelers become when they find out that their flight that was supposed to leave at 6.30 actually is not going to leave until after 11 o'clock with the prospect then of getting home somewhere around 3 o'clock in the morning. That makes some people cranky, I hear. So, you know, for the four and a half hours that we waited, the folks at the American Airlines desk in the Dallas airport answered questions and handled complaints and endured the wrath of all of these cranky customers but listen, for all of the cranky customers who wanted to get on that plane and go home, 
I can tell you with almost 100% certainty that those folks behind the American Airlines desk in the Dallas airport wanted the very same thing. Like, they're like, just get rid of these cranky Canadians, send them home, get them on a plane, different country, they're not our problem anymore, just get them out of here. And at the end of the day, we wanted the same thing. Like, we were striving for the same thing, but we obviously had very different ideas about how that was going to come about. And I'm convinced that what's happening here between Jacob and God is very much like that. Jacob and God want the very same things for Jacob's life. But up to this point in Jacob's life, Jacob wanted God's blessing. The problem was he didn't want God. And that's a problem. And this is where our pride kicks into high gear as well. We want the things that God says that he wants to give us, but, but we don't want to wait as long as God wants us to wait. We don't want to, God's timing just isn't good enough for us, and so we keep waiting and waiting, and eventually we, we can't wait anymore, and so we take matters into our own hands, and we maneuver, and we manipulate, and we deceive to try and get our own way. And God, I don't like this process that you're taking me through to get me from where I am to where you want me to be, and so I'm going to deceive and manipulate and maneuver and try and get my own way. And sometimes it's even so subtle that we look at a situation that we're going through and we think to ourselves, you know what, God? I'm just going to help you out a little bit here. I'm just going to do this. And, and maybe this will draw to your attention again just how serious this is in my life and how much I need this right now. So God, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to contribute. And maybe this will prompt you to do a little bit more. Sometimes it's so subtle because to us, it just seems right. It just seems helpful. It seems good. And yet we find ourselves manipulating the circumstances to try and get something from God that God alone is able to give us. And in the end, when we deceive and manipulate and move ahead of God or lag too far behind God, we end up missing the blessing of God. Now notice this. You've got to see this. Verse 28. Verse 28, it says, Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that he has striven with God and prevailed? It means that humility wins. It means humility wins. I mean, we've heard this before, right? Humility wins. Why? Because humility will always lead us to God and to his presence. So humility wins, but pride always loses. Like, we need to understand this. We need our hearts to be gripped by this. Pride always loses. Arrogance, self-sufficiency always loses. Like, you can set out and chart your own course and do your own thing and try and figure things out on your own and use your own strength and use your own wisdom and all of those things. You can ride that train all the way down the track. You can even be at a point where it looks like everything is going just the way that you want it to go. But the farther along that track you ride that train, eventually you're going to get to the end and it's going to fall off the cliff. Why? Because pride always loses. And when you get on the track of humility and you keep going in that direction and you embrace those humble circumstances into which God leads you, that train of humility is going to lead you straight into the presence of God. And that's where we need to be. We need to be in the presence of God with the strength of God because of the humility that he has given us and the humble circumstances through which he takes us. So God, in his grace, comes to Jacob and he changes his name from Jacob to Israel. That's the first time that the name Israel is mentioned in the Bible and we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Notice verse 29 now. And Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? 
And there he blessed him. So Jacob, named the, uh, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel. You'll notice that there's a different spelling than in verse 30, but it's the same place. And he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the place... Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So the name Peniel means face of God. After all of this, Jacob understands that he has had a close personal encounter with God and he has literally been rescued because nobody sees God and lives. So over the course of this supernatural encounter, Jacob learned all the way back in Genesis 32 what you and I learn in the gospel today. Just like there were lessons for Jacob to learn in the valley of humility, there's four lessons that we need to learn in that very same valley. Here's the first lesson. Number one, in Christ, it's not about what I can give to God, it's about what God wants to give to me. In Christ, it's not about what I can give to God, it's about what God wants to give to me. So at this point in his life, Jacob has done very well for himself. Between all of his livestock, he has well over 500 animals, which makes him extremely prosperous. So consider his life right now. He has a lot of money. He has a big family. He has great investments. He has a lot of possessions. Like materially speaking, he is in a place right now where the story of his future pretty much writes itself. The problem is that spiritually speaking, Jacob is bankrupt. And in a story that only God himself can write, he teaches Jacob that the way that you become spiritually rich is by receiving what only God is able to give you. Which is why it's no mistake that, Jake, that God meets Jacob at a point where, according to verse 23, he sent everything across the river, and according to verse 24, he's standing there alone. I mean, just try and picture that. There's Jacob standing there in the middle of this wide open space, all by himself, like he can hear his echo for miles. He's just standing there like his family's gone, his possessions are gone, everything he owns is gone. It's just him and God. His hands are empty. He has nothing to give. He is at a place where God now comes to meet him. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you, God does not need our help to fix our problems. He doesn't. And this is where the gospel begins, that the greatest problem that we've ever had, our sin, has never been a problem that we could fix ourselves. Like all the money we have, all the possessions we own, all the investments we make, all the planning that we do has never been enough for us to earn God's favor. Only God, in his grace and mercy, looking upon the sinful state of our souls, has given Jesus to die in our place and for our sins and to rise again from the dead to abolish sin and death forever. There is only one plan that will ever be able to save us and you and I have had nothing to do in writing that plan and that will never change. God, in his grace, has come to us. The problem is that I can hear some of you saying, and I can hear you saying it because it's the same question that's rattling around in my own head. The problem is we're saying to ourselves, I know that I belong to the Lord, but I still have problems. Like I still have these real difficult situations within my life that I'm going through every single day. So what do I do with the problems that I face? I mean, I have to do something, right? Like I just can't sit here and watch this thing get worse. So what do I do? And the greater problem that every single one of us have is that we are just like Jacob, aren't we? 
Our tendency is to be proud. Our tendency is to be self-sufficient. Our tendency is to manipulate and deceive and trick and cajole and try and get our own way to provide something for ourselves that we think we need. And so we spend all of this time coming up with these clever plans that we think will take care of ourselves when all that God has wanted from the very beginning is for us to strive with him. That's the thing that we do The first thing that we do is not to pull a Jacob and go and organize and plan and maneuver a circumstance to get what we want. The first thing that we do as followers of Jesus Christ is to strive with God in prayer. Remember what Jesus said in John 15? One of our favorite passages in this church, one of my favorite passages for sure. Jesus says, John 15, verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That is such a great verse, but maybe you're wondering to yourself, well, what exactly is the connection? Well, here's the connection. When you first strive with God in prayer, the way forward becomes clear. When you first strive with God in prayer, the way forward becomes clear. As hard as it is sometimes in the middle of our fear and our anxiety and our worry, may we never resist the advances of Jesus to walk us through the valleys of humility. May we never turn back time and time again, pushing back, pushing back, pushing back the advances of Jesus within our life, not only to walk us through the valley of humility, but to walk with us through the valley of humility because it's there in the valley of humility that we know the comfort of his presence. Listen to the words of this old hymn, Rock of Ages. Listen, just let the doctrine and the theology of this just wash over our hearts right now. It says this, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? In other words, could my enthusiasm, if my enthusiasm were off the charts all the time, go, 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 go for God. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So it doesn't matter how enthusiastic I appear to be. It doesn't matter how great I think I am. It doesn't matter how strong I think I am. In the end, it's only God who can save me. It's only the atoning work of Jesus Christ that can make me right with God. Listen to this next verse. This is where Jacob is. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. In Christ, it's not about what I can give to God. It's about what God wants to give to me. Number two, in Christ, it's not about who I am. It's about who God makes me to be. So in verse 27, God asks him his name and he says, Jacob. One commentator points out that in our culture, our names are a matter of identification. Our names are one thing that we use to differentiate ourselves from one another. But in ancient culture, their names were not just a matter of identification. Their names were a matter of identity. So Jacob's name means deceiver. It means heel grabber. So Jacob is not only his name. His name is what Jacob truly is. 
So this is more than just a conversation between God and Jacob about what Jacob's name is. You got to understand that when God says, what is your name? And Jacob says, my name is Jacob. He is saying, he's confessing who he is. He's confessing that he is a sinner, that he is a deceiver, that he is a heel grabber. He's confessing that he has been dependent upon himself the entire way along. But then, in an extraordinary act of grace, God comes to him and gives him a new name, calls him Israel, which means one who strives with God. I mean, think about this. This, again, is the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. That when we confess to God who we truly are, he comes to us in our sinfulness and turns our hearts of stone into a heart of flesh. That when we were not looking for God, Jesus came after us and showed us God in himself. That just as Jacob saw God face to face and he was delivered, we see God in the person and the work of Jesus and by faith in him, our life is delivered. And not only has he given us a new name, but in the process he has made us an entirely new creation and he has written our names within his book of life for all of eternity. Like this is the work of salvation that God has accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. Though things like fear and failure and brokenness, though things like worry and doubt and anxiety and loneliness and Just all of these things, like all the things that you're going through right now, all the things that are waiting for you this week, you need to understand something so clearly right now. You need to hear this, that all of the fear and the failure and brokenness of your past was never meant to define who you are in Jesus Christ. Jesus has made you new. You are not defined by those things anymore. In Christ, it's not about who I am. It's about who God makes me to be, which leads then to lesson number three. In Christ, it's no longer about the darkness of my past. It's about the dawning of a new day in him. So Jacob gets to the end of this battle and he realizes that he's been striving with God. And then verse 31 says, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. So he's finally at the place where all of the darkness of his past no longer defines him. Just as the sun rises and begins a new day, this now marks the beginning of a new life and a new future for Jacob. And again, this is the power of Jesus Christ within your life and in mine. In him, we are given a new future both now and for eternity. Your past, your present, and even your future are no longer defined by the brokenness and the darkness. You need to understand that Jesus died and rose again to rescue you from that and he gives you new life and a new future in himself. Thing is, there could be some of you sitting here this morning, right now, and you feel like you're at a place in your life where you are still wrestling with God. And you feel like the day has not yet broken, the sun has not yet risen, the blessing has not yet been given. And even now, loved ones, as God walks you through that valley of humility and as God uses that time to root out the pride of your heart, you need to understand that even in the deepest, darkest, lowest parts of that valley, Jesus is calling to you. And as a child of God, Jesus walks with you through those lowest, deepest, darkest parts of that valley. He is calling you to humble yourself before him that he may exalt you in due time. Because what is true at the moment of your salvation is true for every moment of your sanctification. As we say it again, God opposes the proud, 
but he gives grace to the humble. That even as you walk through that valley of humility and you humble yourself before God, he rushes to you. And he wants to be with you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to give you every single thing that you need to walk through that valley. Which brings us then to this fourth lesson. In Christ, my weakness becomes the theater for his strength. So this 97-year-old man has spent the night apart from his family, apart from his caravan, apart from all of his possessions. He has spent the night alone with God. And in his grace, God has literally knocked out the self-sufficiency out of Jacob. And this limp that Jacob has now would serve him not simply as a reminder of Jacob's weakness, but it would serve as a trophy of God's strength. Let me ask you, is your walk with God marked by a spiritual limp? More than anything, to help you realize that as you walk through those dark valleys, that he's everything you need. That you need to cling to him. Like in some sense, everyone who walks into the land of blessing, everyone who walks into the kingdom walks in with a limp. So finally, two points of gospel-driven application. Number one, die to self. Die to self. Our pride and self-sufficiency must die a brutal death at the cross of Jesus Christ. Like we're familiar with the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. A.W. Tozer talks about this very problem of our pride and our self-sufficiency that we all face when he writes this in The Pursuit of God. It's a bit of a long quote, but it's well worth tracking. So, So work hard to track with me through this quote and listen to what Tozer says. Self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. It can be removed only in spiritual experience, never by mere instruction. So it's the pride and self-sufficiency of our hearts is never going to be removed from our hearts just by listening to a sermon or listening to a podcast or coming to church every week or doing this or doing that. It has to happen because God does it. We may as well try to instruct leprosy out of our system. There must be a work of God in destruction before we are set free. We must invite the cross to do its deadly work within us. We must bring our self-sins, in other words, our pride, our self-righteousness, our self-sufficiency, we must bring those things to the cross for judgment. We must prepare ourselves for an ordeal of suffering in some measure like that through which our Savior passed when he suffered under Pontius Pilate. To rip through the dear and tender stuff of which life is made can never be anything but deeply painful. Yet that is what the cross did to Jesus And it's what the cross would do to every person to set them free. Let us beware of tinkering with our inner life in the hope of rending the veil ourselves. God must do everything for us. Our part is to yield and trust. Did you get that? Our part is to yield and trust. We must confess, forsake, repudiate the self-life, and then reckon it crucified. But we must be careful to distinguish lazy acceptance from the real work of God. We must insist upon the work being done. We dare not rest content with a neat doctrine of self-crucifixion. The pathway to humility marches straight through the valley of self-death. But understand that it's not without this invitation to this second point of application. Live in Christ. So die to self. Live in Christ. So listen now to how Tozer once again brings this all together and we conclude with this. Insist 
that the work be done in very truth and it will be done. The cross is rough and it is deadly, but it is effective. It does not keep its victim hanging there forever. There comes a moment when its work is finished and the suffering victim dies. And that is resurrection glory and power. And the pain is forgotten for the joy that the veil is taken away and we have entered in actual spiritual experience the presence of the living God. This is where victory is found. Die to self. Live in Christ. Christ.